Well, New City, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've been looking at the book of Romans for quite a few weeks now, uh, doing a series called Grace for the Nations, because that's where Romans uh, begins. It begins with this idea that God's grace has extended to people that were unworthy of that grace, and God's plan of redemption, and God's uh, ways in the world, and how he's redeeming a people for himself, but he's also redeeming and restoring all of uh, creation. And, and last week, we were look, taking a few weeks to look at Romans chapter 8 together. And last week we looked at a stunning statement that simply says this in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what a, an amazing truth for us to behold and to have our, our souls just awakened with joy. The fact that God is for us and not against us. There is nothing that we could do to earn God's pleasure or salvation or redemption, that it was a gift given to us. And that's where Paul has been going in Romans 8 is, is this idea that, that he comes to people that don't deserve this gift and he brings them into the family, which, which you think that was really great, Romans 8 1. But think about this week. This week is about our adoption, that, that Paul's going to say in Romans that, that we are sons and daughters of God, that you've received the spirit of adoption. And, and so if you're with your, your family right now or you're even uh, alone, I, I just want you to, to say that with me, is that I'm adopted by God. Last week was amazing. Yes and amen. No condemnation. But this week, I'm adopted uh, by God. And that's what we're going to to look at uh, this morning, is that Paul, the, the writer here in Romans, is going to continue to build on the, the blessings and the privileges that we have in salvation. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that he's talking to this church, this young church, immature church. They're, they're new to the faith. He's never met these people in his life, but he's writing them a letter and, he, and he's saying, I don't want you just to, to understand the gospel. Um, I don't want you just to have a, a head full of ideas, um, or, or the, theory in your head, but, but I want you to experience its power. I want you to experience the blessings and the privileges of salvation. And really, that's what Romans 8 is all about. It's what does it look like to walk in the power of the Spirit, to enjoy and experience God's power in our lives, God's grace, His love in our lives. And and the way that Paul is going to help us grapple with the magnitude of those realities is when he talks about divine adoption. Um, that we have been uh, invited into the family of God, that, that by faith we are now children of God. We are sons, we are daughters of God. Um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson, when he talks about adoption, he says, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the ma- mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. This this idea of divine adoption is one of the greatest realities and truth for the disciple, the believer in Christ, that we are God's children. And so what I want to do is I want to first look at Romans 8 together. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 14 to 25 this morning, and then we're going to next week finish out the rest of Romans 8. But this morning, I just want to hone in on verses 14 to 25. So here's what it says, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so what I want to do with this text this morning is I want to do simply this, is I want to ask two questions of our text, and then I want to give us a path of long-term growth and adoption. Like, how do we experience that in a, re- in a real, tangible way, even in the midst of suffering? Now, I say that because that's what our text talks about, um, that we are to suffer as Christ was to suffer. But how do we continue on, even when life is hard, even when things fall apart, when we begin to question and begin to consider what it means to follow Christ, how do we keep on going and experience the realities of God's mercy and God's love and God's power in our lives. So so the first question that we want to ask from the test is, who are the children of God? Now, the the reason why I ask that question is because of the way in which Paul uh, uses uh, the or the, the words that Paul uses in the text that he three times calls the church sons. Uh, you notice that verse fourteen: for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse fifteen: for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, uh, Abba, Father. And if you jump down to verse nineteen: for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that doesn't not include only men, sons. That's the metaphor he's, he's choosing because he's also including, including women and children, of course, that are, that are female because then he adds three times children. Verse 16, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And if you jump down to verse 21, this is that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so y'all, so y'all, Paul is using this familial language to describe our divine adoption into the family of God, that we are children of God, we are sons of God, we've been adopted into the family, we are daughters of the king, if you want to use that language. Now, this is interesting because Paul's using adoption language, and adoption, <coughs> excuse me, in the first century was actually very common. It was a, a legal procedure in Rome that would take place when a wealthy uh, typically, obviously, a man would have an estate or a bunch of uh, riches that he didn't have to pass down to children. And so typically how it would work is if you were a, a man and you had an estate and you had wealth and you have an inheritance, you would pass that down to your oldest son um, and eventually the rest of the, the family. But if that wasn't the case, you could adopt a child, a youth, or even an adult into your family to now receive the inheritance. Now, what happened in this this adoption arrangement? Well, one thing was if you were the recipient of the the adoption, as all your old debts and obligations were canceled, 
Um, so, so they were all paid for you. So you had nothing against you, no liens against you. All your loans were played, paid. You were taken care, care for, care for, and you were brought into the, the new family. Also, you got a new name and a new identity, the, the name of the family. So you were fully adopted into that family and you got a, a whole new name, a whole new identity. So if you had a particular name, that name was gone away. But when you were adopted in that new family, you got a brand new name and an identity. Also, the father, the one who was given the inheritance, um, would also take care of all debts or crimes or anything that that would this person would be liable for. He would essentially cover them and take care of them while he was still alive, and protect them. And then, lastly, the the new the new son had an obligation to honor and please uh, the father. So, so Paul is using this metaphor of our own divine adoption, using this first century adoption process to say that's exactly what's happened to us in Christ. That our debts of sin have been paid. The penalty's been been paid for us. That we get a new name and a new identity. Now we're sons of God. Now we're daughters of God. We, we are no longer our own, but we've been bought at a, at a price. This Father protects us and guards us. That Christ died for us so that, so that we would have uh, nothing against us, no debts against us, no condemnation against us. That even Christ's own moral record and righteousness becomes our own and he takes care of us. So now we have full access to God the Father. So the question is, who are the children of God? Well, okay, that's kind of on a, on a general sense, but more specifically, Paul kind of hones in and says in verse 14, well, the children of God are all who are led by the Spirit of God, our sons of God. So he, he says it's very specifically, not just that you've been adopted into the family in a general sense, that, that you're called sons or daughters of the king by trusting in Christ, but now you actually are being led, dwelt by the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit of God. We, we talked about that a little bit last week. So what does that mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Now, I think for a lot of people, we think, we think only in terms of, well, that's some kind of divine wisdom, right? So each and every day I live my life and I want to be led by the Spirit of God. I want to do the right things. I want to honor God. I want to glorify God. But I don't think that's what Paul means here in a, in a whole sense. That that could be true of us, of course. But what he means by people that are led by the Spirit of God, it's contrasting what we talked about last week, those that are led by the flesh, sin. Being led by the Spirit means that that we love God, (laughs) that we want our lives to magnify Him, to glorify Him, to make much of Him in everything that we do, that we love Christ with our whole being, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And secondly, the the opposite of that would be to say that we now hate God. Sin. We hate what sin does to us. We hate that how it destroys the world. We hate how it causes us to not live as God would want us to live. So being led by the Spirit isn't just some kind of divine wisdom of, you know, should I, uh, you know, how do I uh, deal with this difficult coworker today at work? Or, or how do I, you know, make this decision about this purchase or whatever? And those are all important things, not, not minimizing any of those things. <clears throat> but at its core, to be led by the Spirit of God and to be a son of God is to say that Christ is my ultimate joy and my Lord and my Savior, that everything in my life is shaped around Him. And I'm dying to sin, I'm hating sin, I'm walking in a new power, in the power of the Spirit of God. And if you're a believer in Christ, all of us have the Spirit of God in us, and we are all sons and daughters of God if we are trusting in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, But, but secondly, 
I think it's important to understand um, adoption is that that adoption is something that also is is received. It's not something that we are, that is earned. It's you notice here in, in verse fifteen. Notice the language Paul uses: "For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." So this isn't a a special privilege for us. Because somehow we're morally superior because we're good people. That, that's not what this is, Paul's saying at all. He's saying this, this whole thing is a, is a gift. That's not how adoption works. We don't choose our family. They choose us, right? So, so the whole process of adoption in the first century, even modern day adoption, is, is something that the child doesn't go, hey, I want this family. The, the, the family's the one that reaches out to them and says, now you are mine. Now you belong to our family. And all the rights and all the privileges of the family are yours. All the debts have been, been, been paid. All, all the, 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 the blessings of the family are now yours. You don't have to earn this. If you were to adopt a child, you, you don't tell them, hey, the only way you can experience the full blessings and privileges of the family is if you're a good kid. Right? We still love the kid even, even when they fall short, of course. When they, they misbehave, of course. Just like my kids, I don't kick them out of the family every time they, they, they wrong me or my wife or do something to each other. So, so it's something that's received, not, not earned. Our son, sonship literally is to God sonizing us, if you will, adopting us. Not by biology or naturally, you know, the, the gospel uh, of John would say that, that it's the, the gift of salvation, the gift of relationship and adoption with, with Jesus is, has to do with us receiving it. It wasn't born because of our will. We had to be born from above. It wasn't because we chose God, but it was because he came to us to make us his, his kids. Now, I think it's important just to, to say one, one brief thing is that there is often talk about, you know, everyone is a child of God. Now, in one sense, we are a child of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. And so every human being on the planet that will ever be, that ever was and ever will be, has, has dignity and worth before God and honor before God because they are made by their creator. They, they, they are made in the image of God. And the scriptures make that very, very clear. And, and, and also, every human gets to experience God's, what, what we call common grace. That Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So, so non-believers can experience the goodness of marriage, good food, good art, jobs, relationships, all the good things of the universe that God bestows on us, even if they don't acknowledge God. That's God's common grace. But what Paul's talking about here is a different kind of blessing and a different kind of privilege. And it's not for everybody. It's for only those who have, tru- have put their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. The, the, the ones that are truly adopted have received him as their Lord, as their Savior. They've, they've trusted it, that his work is sufficient on their behalf. Which leads us to the second question is, well then what are all these adoption privileges that we receive now as disciples of Jesus? And that's where Paul continues to move. He's not just saying we're just in general, everyone's a children of God. He says those that are where we can say in honesty, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because I'm trusting in the work of Christ on my behalf. But now there's all these blessings. So what, what are all the privileges of adoption that we receive as his kids? What are these privileges? What are these blessings? And there's a couple here that, that Paul mentions in the, in the text. One is we get a new security in Christ. A new security. You notice that in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery 
to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I hinted at this last week, the difference between the spirit of slavery, of fear, and the, the spirit of adoption where there is no fear. That, that this parent-child relationship is not based on fear. It doesn't run on fear. We should not be scared of God on any level. Now, there's a holy fear, there's a reverent fear, there's a humble fear that says God is God and we are not, and we bow before him and we know that he is holy and that he is God and sovereign and good and wise and with us. But we have full access to this God and there's no fear in this relationship. It's a little bit how fathers and sons and daughters, that there's not a sense of fear, there's a trust that's built there, that they can run and jump into daddy's lap and say, I love you, and know that it's a secure place. And Paul's using this imagery of the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption, because in the first century, a slave, if you were a slave working for a family, there was always a fear that you were going to lose your employment, because if you just did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing, you were out. And, and first century slavery, very different than, than, you know, slavery 400 years ago, uh, modern, we we'll call it modern slavery if you want. Um, but, but their livelihood was, was predicated on working with a particular family. They were employed by the family. So Paul's playing with that. He's saying, you're a child of God. You're adopted in the family. You have all the rights of the family. You don't have to live in fear any longer that you're going to screw up or do too many bad things or say the wrong things and be kicked out. God never says that to us. The spirit of fear has been now replaced with the spirit of adoption. You are sons. You are daughters of God. So the Father will never leave us. Secondly, another blessing is we get a new identity and a new name. We, I mentioned that earlier, just the process of, of adoption in the first century, very, very common. But, but notice he says, you received a spirit, um, in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slaves to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul identifies to say, if if you're in Christ, you get a new name and a new identity. You're a son now. (laughs) Like you're a son of God. Like that, we sing that all the time. And, 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 you know, we're, we've sung that a million times in our church in different, different ways. And and sometimes it just doesn't hit you until you kind of walk through Romans 8 and go, God of heaven and earth calls me a son. God of heaven and earth calls you a daughter that, that we're part of the family and, and we, we have a new name and a new identity that, that what shapes our lives ultimately is not our ethnicity. Ultimately, it's not our political stance. Ultimately, it's not where we grew up or what we've done in the past or our education or what neighborhood we live in. Ultimately, what shapes the disciple of Jesus is the name that we've been given now, that we are sons and daughters of Jesus. So he gives us a new identity. Now, I think this is so significant because I think a lot of what uh, happens in our, our lives is really just what I call the name game is that we're called to these certain roles and identities as, as humans. So, you know, we're, we're, we're called to be, you know, uh, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and workers. But what happens is those names and those identities get so lifted up. And every time we fall short of those names and those identities, we feel this sense of guilt and weight and condemnation. But God gives us a name, a a name above all names, if you will, to say, no, 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 ultimately, you're a son of of me, of mine. You're my kid, right? It's not what you do or what you accomplish or the goals that you're setting or how well the job's going or how well you're doing as a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a neighbor. 
It's you are a son of God. You have a new identity, and that should shape your life because all those other identities and roles are just shifting sand. They come and go. We have good days in those. We do well in those roles at times, and at times we don't. But the, the role and the identity that never changes is we are sons. We are daughters. So a new identity, a new name. We also get a new intimacy, a new intimacy. Did you, did you catch what, he, what Paul said in 15 about this, this word, we cry, Abba, Father. It's an, it's an intimate word. It's an Aramaic word that Jesus used to address the Father. And when Jesus addressed uh, Father God with, with this Aramaic word, Abba, it was very scandalous to Jewish people. You, you can't call God Daddy or, I mean, we could, we could even translate this Pops. <laughs> like that's, he's God. Like we don't approach God like that. He's not our Daddy. He's not our Pops. He's the holy transcendent God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, which is, which is all true. But, but you can't, you can't be that intimate with God. He's not like that. Jesus shifts even how we talk to God, that Jesus had this intimate, close relationship with God, the same relationship that we're invited into as his sons and as, as his daughters. There's a new intimacy that, that we get to experience. It's like a, like a, a trusting child can now approach their father in boldness because of the grace that's been extended to us in Christ. That we can climb into the lap of our father, if you will, our pops, our daddy, and talk to him and commune with him. He never pushes us away. We can talk to God like a trusted friend. That, that's the language that, that Paul's using here. Even later, when in, we won't talk about this week, but next week is when we, we even pray. The Spirit of God helps us pray in our weakness and approach God because He's a loving Father. It's the, the language that Jesus uses. It's the language that Paul uses. He uses in Galatians as well. This intimacy, this new closeness that we get to experience with God. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, about 30, 40 years ago, wrote uh, had this quote, which I think is really helpful when we think about this new relationship we have because we've been adopted into Christ. He says, Abba was a word lisped by a, ch- a little child. Let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father. It's a very strong word, and clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. What then does it imply? Obviously, real knowledge of God. Uh, God is no longer to us a distant God. He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. All this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. All this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Our worship and praying are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the Father, and not only spontaneity, but confidence. So, so the way Lloyd-Jones understands it is this, this is a deep cry of the soul that we can cry out to God in an in a, in a intimate, emotional way. Now, it's not always like that. We know our lives aren't always like that. But that's the kind of access that we have, that, that God himself says, come and enjoy relationship with me, enjoy presence with me. There is no condemnation. There's no fear in this relationship. There's a new intimacy that we are his kids and he is our good daddy. He's our good daddy. We also get a, a new insur- assurance. The Spirit bears witness, Paul says in verse 16, that we are children of, of God. So if we're, we're trusting in Christ, we're trusting in His promises, we're growing in His image and His character, we want to serve Him, these are all evidences that we belong to Jesus. Now obviously we know we, we, we don't do that perfectly. We fall short almost every day, but we are sons of God. There's a new assurance that comes that the Spirit bears witness that we belong 
to him. Now, this is an interesting phrase that Paul uses here because um, it has this idea of a trial. So that if you're in a trial, there's someone rushes into the courtroom. Imagine, you know, the Holy Spirit rushing into the courtroom, basically saying, "This person is innocent. This person wasn't at the crime scene. They they are good. We need to let them go." And so, in in many ways, what he's doing is using that illusion, that illusion, uh, illustration, I should say, or metaphor. That the Spirit of God lives in us in such a way that it witnesses that you are sons, you belong to Jesus, because we want to trust Him, we want to serve Him, we want to know Him, that we belong to Him, that the Spirit Himself pleads on our behalf, you're my kid, you belong to me. Now, I think there's also another level of understanding this, is that there are times when we have heightened experiences of this love. That there are times where the Spirit, in a very tangible, powerful way, reminds us of the love and the mercies and the grace and the joy that we have in Christ, that we truly do belong to God. Now, I wish those experiences were all the time, but they're not. That in the ordinary uh, days of, of raising kids and working jobs and, and eating food and, and enjoying friendships and, and all the things and serving God in, in different ways, I wish it was always like that, but there are times where God wants to gift us and give us moments where he says, Ryan, I just want to remind you that you belong to God. You are my son. You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to be everything to everyone for me. And maybe like me and maybe like yourself, you've had those moments where we just pause and just go, man, just overwhelmed by the reality that we belong um, to God. It's why we gather to worship together. It's why we sing these songs and hear God's promises so that we can remember that we belong. The Spirit of God Himself bears witness to those realities that you, uh, no one can ever take that away from you. God is with you. God is, is for you. So a new assurance. A new and certain future also. He says that we're heirs of God. We have a future that's unimaginable. <laughs> the, the the inheritance that that Paul uses this metaphor of adoption this this inheritance in a in a state that's going to be passed down he's using that again in a in, in a first century context but but what Paul's doing here in verse uh, seventeen leading into verse eighteen is and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him that that all the blessings all the inheritance that was given to Christ is now given to us as his sons and his daughters. That the future is secure for us. That we can't even begin to imagine what eternal life will be like. When our bodies are resurrected, when we're healed, where there is no more sin and death and sorrow and cancer and pandemics. When when those are all done away with, we can't imagine the future that is certain for us. When life is hard, when there's suffering, we we can't imagine what it's like to rule and reign with Christ. Even the the, the talk of of a mansion in heaven, I don't even know what that means, but apparently even our housing is taken care of. We have this future that is certain because we are heirs of God. The inheritance that was given to Christ, all the blessings and the inheritance of Christ is now ours because we're his children. Now, Paul's going to pick that up and flush it out a little bit more in, in 19 uh, to 22 in just a moment. Um, that's going to kind of be a little bit of our application here this morning. But imagine this, this idea that, that even as individual Christians, if God is that merciful that he's going to take care of Matt and Scott and, and he's going to take care of Jonathan and he's going to, going to take care of me and my, my family individually, think about just multiplying that out and just thinking about how generous God is. 
that, that all of us get, get to be part of that. It's not just one privileged person. It's, it's this whole family of God, his, his people, his kids. He's saying, I'm, I'm so generous and so loving and so gracious and merciful that all that inheritance, all that future is yours. And not only that, as we'll see in just a moment here, the entire creation, the broken, sin-scarred world is going to be healed and restored. And there's going to be a future inheritance that you can't even fathom. No more sin and tears, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more pandemics. That's who God is. That's how generous he is towards his kids. The kids he's adopted into his family that don't deserve any of it. And then then the last blessing, and then we'll get to kind of an application, is there's a new refinement that also happens as his kids. You might have caught that in verse, the end of verse 17, that provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We know in this life that life is difficult, that often we suffer for following Christ, for what we believe and who we are and the way we choose to live our lives. We also suffer in other ways too. We, we, we suffer mentally. We suffer physically because sin is still real and the residue is still here. We get depressed and anxious and suffering takes on all kinds of shapes and sizes. But I think in the context of our adoption as being God's kids, is that a good father always disciplines his kids for the sake of their own growth and their own joy. If you're a good father, you have to discipline your kids. And it's not because you hate your kids or you want to make their lives miserable. It's because down the road, one day, they're going to realize all the pain of of discipline and suffering was for greater joy. And that's a little bit what Hebrews says. Now, Paul didn't write Hebrews, but but I think Hebrews 12... um, is really insightful in how God disciplines us through even suffering. He says in, in Hebrews 12, verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields, here it is, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The refinement, the discipline, the suffering that we go through following Christ is always for a greater good. It's to make us holy, to make us more like King Jesus. That's, that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 29, that we've been redeemed to be conformed in the image of Christ. So God uses primarily, I would agree, in other things too, but, but suffering to do that. The, the Paul would say that, yeah, in suffering, God creates his faith and endurance and hope. He said that earlier in Romans. There's something going on. James talks that way. That even in trial, consider trial, my brothers, you know, have considered have joy in trial. How do you have joy in trials? It's because the end game, even in the midst of that, God is refining us. God is putting us in the crucible of suffering so that we can experience more peace and more joy and more life in Him, because He's a loving Father that only wants good for us. So any suffering that we experience, any discipline that we experience, is not because we are not His kids. It's because we are and He loves us. He's not pushing us away. He's inviting us even deeper into relationship with Him. So there's a, there's a new refinement uh, that happens. And Paul's playing with that idea of 
these momentary sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So, because that's kind of the, the last part is, is, is how do we keep going in the midst of suffering? How do we keep going when following Christ seems very, very difficult? When suffering comes in our lives and we go, we just throw up our hands and go, like, why is this happening? How do we keep going when we're walking through a pandemic when the future isn't certain? And I think in God's providence and God's timing, Romans 8, 18 to 25 are such a helpful uh, teaching to, to, to show us how do we actually do this. Notice what Paul says here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, I know things are difficult. And this is written to a first century context that they're experiencing suffering and pain and loss like you and I can't even believe. But these momentary, these temporary sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. The inheritance I talked about, that's coming. One day when all is restored, all is renewed, when our salvation becomes sight, when when our bodies are healed, when the entire world is healed and we rule and reign with Christ, when there's no more sin and suffering. So so these momentary sufferings in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic are a blip or a band-aid in God's economy. Rip off the band-aid. One day we'll look back at this in eternity and just laugh and go, yeah, that really stunk. But it's nothing compared to the glory that's now been revealed in us. It's nothing compared to the inheritance that we have now. So how do you keep going? Well, well, I found myself, which, which is amazing that texts like this have to kind of push on me quite a bit, is that I've been complaining and anxious and worried and forgetting that there's a future glory that even if this pandemic never ends and, and even if people never get healed or there is, never is a vaccine, which, Lord willing, I hope that's not true, it's nothing compared to the glory that's coming. The The loved ones that we've lost, the people that are walking in mental disability, cancer, mental health, all kinds of health, chronic pain, whatever it is, job loss, it doesn't compare to what's coming. Our future is secure. And so he builds on this this reality that the entire, like our ourselves individually, but also the entire creation, the whole world, is groaning as if in childbirth. Now, why does he use that imagery of childbirth? I think it's a perfect imagery. Well, what happens when you have a baby? (laughs) Or your wife has a baby, in my case. It's the greatest joy you've ever experienced. But to have that child is not that great, (laughs) as far as I can tell from my wife having multiple children. It's painful. It's bloody. It's messy. But so Paul uses this, this metaphor of childbirth to say, say this, this part is really messy, but the joy of, of being his kids, the joy of what comes out on the other side and having that child was totally worth it. Every mother would say that, yes, it stinks and it's hard and it's hard being a parent and it's hard dealing with behavior issues as they get older. But what is coming and the joy that you get to experience as a parent is nothing compared to these current sufferings and pain. The entire cosmos, the entire world is feeling that ache. I think that's 
human nature. I think that's why we want to be outside and we don't want to be under quarantine anymore. I think it's us asking a lot of questions. Why? Because the whole world has this underlying ache that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Because it's not. But God is redeeming and restoring his prized possession, ultimately his kids, but also the entire world to renew it and shape it. Why? Now, why this is important is because knowing this and experiencing this and knowing the present realities are are short-term and short-lived is it helps us to keep on going when things get really, really hard. Because the Spirit of God is with us to remind us, you belong to God. Keep on going. It's, It's hard right now but it's not compared to what's coming and the inheritance that's coming. When your adoption is fully realized, that's why he says you can wait patiently in hope. You can wait for it. The full blessings, the full privileges, because we've only got a little taste here on earth, but oh, it's going to get get way, way better. And I just want to kind of close out our time with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And I think this sums up a lot of what what Paul is saying here. This is from Mere uh, Christianity. He says this, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. And that's what he said here in Romans 8, that the current sufferings don't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. We can say as believers in Christ, our best days are always ahead of us. Always. That's what Romans 8 says. Doesn't matter what happened in the past, doesn't matter what we're walking in now, our best days are still ahead. And, and I pray that would be an encouragement at New City Church as we kind of move toward just the unknown of even trying to reopen our, our church in a few weeks, is that our best days are still ahead of us because Roman 8, Romans 8 tells us that's true in every way. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for Romans 8. And thank you that our best days are truly ahead of us. That we, we can't even begin to fathom that we are sons and daughters of God. Of, of what that truly means. I, I don't think even on this side of eternity we can really fathom and grapple with the fact that we've been adopted into the family of God and what all the blessings and privileges mean for us. That you are for us. That you're a loving Father. Uh, you, you are our Abba. You are our Daddy. You are our Pops that we can run to and we can enjoy. And we, we are secured in you. That our, our hopes and our dreams are not built on what the world says our hopes and dreams should be built on. Our hopes and dreams aren't built on how well our career goes or how well ordered our, our family is. But, but our hopes and our lives are rooted in you because we have a new name and a new identity. I pray as we walk through difficult times together as a community of faith that you will remind us constantly that Romans 8 says these momentary sufferings don't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Our best days are yet to come. Help us walk in that. Help us experience that. Help us remind that as a spirit witnesses to our own spirits that we are sons and daughters of the King. And that changes everything. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.
Amen.